My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Hey, glad to have you tuned in to Transmissions this week. Our guest on the show today is Ben Chasney of Six Organs of Admittance. His new album is called The Veiled Sea, and it's out this week via Three Lobed Records, the always reliable Three Lobed. Six Organs can sound very different album to album. Uh, they're sort of quiet acoustic sketches on some of the stuff, or long blown out psych epics on others. This one's sort of a whole new thing entirely, with really wild, glam-inspired solos and sort of insane riffs. Uh, plus, there's a Faust cover. I really, I really dig this album. Chasney stopped by to discuss it, uh, as well as his long tenure with the legendary Comets on Fire. If you want to hear more from the Comets camp, we've got an interview with Ethan Miller in the archives. Uh, ben also joined me to talk about his trio with Sir Richard Bishop and Chris Corsano Rangda uh, and the dubious freak folk term. We get into a lot more, including uh, Amuamua, the uh, interstellar scout, and some other far out topics. So I hope you enjoy this one. Before we head in, remember rating and reviewing the podcast uh, makes a huge difference. Uh, share it on your social media pages, share it via whatever platform you have access to. We count on word of mouth, and so if you enjoy transmissions and you enjoy our talks week after week, please uh, uh, do what you can to get the word out and help others get turned on to what we are doing. If you want to take your support even deeper, Aquarium Drunkard is on Patreon. All right, I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side, but without further delay, let's get into my conversation with Ben Chasney of Six Organs of Admittance. I've been a big fan for a really long time. It was a real treat to have him on. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'll speak with you more a little bit on the other side. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. It's real nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. So before our interview, you emailed to let me know that though you are in Northern California, you haven't seen any big, big you haven't had any Bigfoot sightings, so you, you short-circuited my first question. Uh, that's what I was going to ask you to start. Have you seen Bigfoot? But other than that, how are things in Humboldt County? um no i've never seen a bigfoot um and i've never been particularly interested in him either which is interesting as he's quite popular around here you know yeah Uh, but uh, it seems like there's been more and more interest uh in him especially with that new show that's going on yeah, yeah, a show which I I don't know if you've watched it yet, Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah, I did. I saw it. So, so you know, the Bigfoot uh thing is not he he's like a he's like a metaphorical device for the show, I feel like, as much as he is a a character. But that's that's cool. But but that you you grew up in in the area, right? Um I did. I grew I yes, I grew up here. And then I left um about 20 years ago wow came back you came back a couple just a couple years ago yeah just like a year and a half ago what brought you back after all that time living in other places i mean what you've lived all over but but what what brought you back to to the area Mm, mostly family my family's still here Hmm. so i kind of moved back to the town to be closer to them yeah Mm -hmm. how do you like it how do you like being back Oh, it's nice. It's it's a beautiful area, you know. And then it, um, more and more friends are coming in to the area, and that's pretty cool. So, um, 
Yeah, it's it's it, well, mostly it's nice to be close to my family. Yeah, I don't really go out into the towns or anything. I just stay at my house and hang out with the family and things. I mean, the idea was that I would be here and then just go on tour, but that has obviously not happened at all. So, well, right. Did did you feel like it was a good place to ride out the the pandemic or the weird the weird year? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's pretty the population's pretty small here and there's so much countryside and we've taken quite a few trips to the beach which is only like 5 minute drive from here and yeah. it's been pretty mellow. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's great. So the new record, were you were you working on The Veiled Sea? at home during the the pandemic or was it more or less wrapped up before things got strange? It was probably 60 or 70% done. And then I finished it up last year. Mm. So, so I mean, you, you've got, there's this record, there's a new, new bums record, your, your group with Donovan Quinn were, was that also done over the course of the, the year? Uh, no, that, that's been done for a while mm. it's that the new bums record just took us a while to figure to finally wrap up uh, basically and uh we just kind of did some final mixing on it we were trying to get it done before a tour that we did in november of 2019 we did a living room tour of the west coast and we couldn't quite get it done and then we were just going to release it on cassette and i thought i would just ask drag city if they wanted to do it and then they said yeah that they, they would do it so that's kind of how that one ended up coming out do you are are you typically the kind of artist who does a lot of remote recording and remote collaboration? I.e., you know, you're recording stuff, sending it to friends, or friends are sending stuff to you for your records. Is that are you pretty comfortable working that way? Because a lot of people had to get comfortable working that way yeah. over the course of the last year in order to you know do things. W- was it similar for you? Um, Donovan and I had been doing that for a bit with New Bums, so that was kind of my first experience really working like that in collaboration. When I did the August Born record with Hiroyuki back in 2001 or 2002, I didn't really have a setup where I could record. And I would go to a friend's studio and we would just record over the top of each other on the mm. on a CDR and send it. So there was no mixing to do at the end of it. It was really primitive. So when we were done with the record, we're just like, all right, it's done. Yeah. Just get a math. There's no mixing. And that's how that record was done. So I've kind of had a bit more unorthodox ways of recording um, long distance in the past. So with the Veiled Sea, was this stuff that you did uh, in, in your home? This is all home studio stuff? Mm, yeah, it was. Um, most of it was done. I thought it was going to be the next drag. I was recording it as the next Drag City record. Um, and then everything kind of got pushed back Drag City-wise. Cause I thought that companion rises was going to come out in November and they told me, no, let's push it to next. They got a bunch of people in November. And then, so, and then, so then when that, so companion rises got moved to 2020. And then when Corey asked if I had anything, then I thought, Oh, well you actually have half of a record already recorded. So I'll just finish this up for you, Corey. Cool. I'm curious if you go in with a concept for most records, because obviously that's something that you've done sometimes. You know, you sort of have mm. like sort of frameworks that you will build into what you're doing. Was it like that with the Veiled Sea, or was it a little bit more freeform? Uh, it was a little conceptual in that my idea was to take the, some of the themes from the previous record, Companion Rises, uh, some of the more uh, more like astronomical themes, I guess you'd say, and continue those and even continue the more electronic aspects into it, which is something I don't usually do. I don't usually like to continue a theme or continue sounds from one record to another. I like to kind of jump across in terms of um, sounds or genre. Like if I do any, if I do a harsh, harsher rock record, the next record, I kind of like to be acoustic. Um, so this was, so I did that kind of for the first time in a while on this. What? Well, there's there's a bunch of things I'd love to to uh, explore there, but I'm curious about what it is that that generally speaking, when you decide, okay, I want to flip the script. I don't want to follow along with the ideas of the previous record. 
what do you think is sort of behind some of the, the the thought process? Do you just like the idea of not getting stuck in in a certain mode? Is that maybe the reason that you you tend to go that way, or is it just a little bit more personality style where you just want to get out of you know out of one framework maybe in your head and into another? Where do you think that sort of comes comes it, from? It's probably it's probably a, more of trying to get a sense of balance. Um, and trying to balance out uh, tones and sounds. And um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's more of trying to get a, just a sense of balance rather than being like purely contrarian or trying to throw people off my tail or, sure. you know, you think you think I'm like this, I'm not like that, I'm like this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I do there's, a, there's, a, there's a fair amount of that in your discography too, though, you know? There probably is a bit, but I do, I, I like the idea of, the, of a ba of balance. My dad's a mechanic and um, a car mechanic, and he. Uh, although actually he's certified to work on aircraft, but um, so he's a mechanic. And and so one thing I learned early on as a kid is when you put on a wheel to a car and you're putting on the lug nuts, you don't go around in a circle. You go from one side to the next, and you kind of go back like that. So I've always thought of the records coming out to have a total balance. Yeah. On everything I do to kind of go across the wheel, you know, in terms of sound. Right, right. Well, this record is awesome and you shred a lot on this record. There's like some pretty like overt, glorious guitar fireworks happening on this album. Hmm, thanks. That's because of that guy. I got that. You, for people just listening to the podcast, I'm pointing over my shoulder to um, to a Jackson king v guitar that i got and i thought well if i got this jackson i should probably do a little more guitar solos than usual what what how did how did the jackson enter into your life did you go to a guitar shop and say i'm taking this one home or or how did it find its well, way to you we have a uh my partner elisa her friends are um they're they're very good at finding guitars. And I just put it out. I said, I've always kind of wanted one of those pointy guitars. <laughs> Can you find me a pointy guitar? And they said, we found a uh, Jackson. I'm like, all right, yeah, get that Jackson pointy guitar for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned your partner. I think you, I, I haven't gone back and checked. I think you might be the first spouse of another guest that we've had on the podcast. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Maybe. But anyway. But, yeah. Uh, the, the Jackson guitar, let's just say it's a pretty like it's a it's a stylistic uh, choice. It's it's a definitely a very striking looking instrument. Uh, are you yeah. are you drawn to to strange or somewhat you know? I think I've I've seen you a, a fair amount of times, and I don't I think it's usually you know no, usually normal looking guitars, whatever yeah, that whatever that means. I've been playing a Strat with the humbucker at the bridge for like 10 years now. Um, and I usually do play just Strats. Um, no, I originally wanted it for a Rongda guitar because mm, I thought yeah. it would be really fun to play that while Rick plays his red uh, kind of uh, semi-hollow body guitar. So I was thinking more visuals. And yeah. then I also was looking forward to showing up at a wrong to practice with that guitar for all the ridicule that I would get from Rick. Yeah. For showing up with that. Until until you start to play and then he'd have to concede that this is a, a shred machine and that you, it was the right choice on your part. He's always trying to get me to play bass. And if I showed up with that guitar, then it'd be, hey, I'm not playing bass. That's what that said. <laughs> have you been able to connect with, with him and, and, and Corsano? Uh, uh over the course of of the last year um just through text and email yeah but we have, we haven't done any music although um chris and i have been talking about the need to probably do some music pretty soon those records are so wild and so uh so fun to listen to it does sort of feel like there's a little bit of a you know a, a slight uh overlap between the veiled sea and some of the wrong stuff just in terms of the the sort of exuberance and the celebratory quality. Um, for for you, this, I mean, it was a weird year. Uh, I think that's putting it lightly, but um, but it's interesting to see what kind of stuff people have come up with uh, during during this this last strange stretch of time, where where a lot of people were working at home and a lot of people, I think, felt 
completely free to shake up their routine and to to throw off any sort of um, assumptions, you know, that somebody might have about their work. Uh, right. Did it feel that way for you? I mean, did you feel like uh, was working on this record, the parts of it that were done in you know quarantine or whatever? Did it feel at all like an escape from what was going on in the world or a refuge or anything like that? Um, it did not. Yeah. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had a refuge. Um, no, it, it didn't. It, it felt pretty because that's kind of how I record anyway, by myself um, in my room. And so it, it, it didn't seem that different. To yeah. Me, to yeah. Well, coming off of of Companion Rises with the sort of themes that you were talking about, I found that very, very interesting, the sort of astronomical uh, stargazing element of stuff. There's a great interview that you did for The Quietest where you talk a lot about how that's something that, you know, you sort of found yourself looking up. Was that uh, connected to being out in a place where there is just less light pollution and you were able to see the stars in a, in a more meaningful way? Yeah. I mean, that's how it started when I was growing up. I grew up in a very rural area with no light pollution and nothing to do. And really only one friend. I mean, it was really, really, um, yeah, kind of farmland area and, uh, that's just what I did for entertainment really is I did a lot of stargazing and I had a really cheap telescope and I would even do drawings that I would look, try to draw like Jupiter and the moons and uh, try to look at the Orion nebula and things like that. So that's some of my first entertainment really. Yeah. What was it like getting back into, I mean, back into it, is it a situation where, like, what what what's sort of like the optimal conditions for you in terms of, of stargazing? Do you like try to? There was last year that there was like what the the Saturn Jupiter conjunction, which was this really cool yeah. moment that I know for me like having a, it was like appointment viewing. You know, I was like, all right, we're gonna yeah. go out and try to see it, and uh, and we did, and it was and it was remarkable and and cool and exciting. I mean, are, are you sort of like do you have like a do you have like a star calendar of events that you're trying to pay attention well, to? No, I just have a, I have a app that kind of tells me all the big things that will be happening for the month. And sometimes I'll go and try to see them or whatever. Where I'm at right now with my house, there's a little bit of light pollution, but I can go up this hill or this mountain and kind of see stuff a little bit better. Um, yeah, I, I probably just go outside of my house, outside of my door more. Definitely, I can see the stars a lot better than I could in seattle or a lot of san francisco or other places i've lived yeah well there was a song on on companion rises that referenced a muamua which was i guess it's we've talked about it on the podcast with uh with a former guest with ken ken lane of desert oracle radio and uh we talked about you know the scout that's the hawaiian term for scout uh are you drawn to weird sort of stuff like that anomalous stuff or uh what's your you, you're not afraid to uh explore all sorts of interesting esoteric ground so i guess what i'm getting at is uh, is your interest more astronomical is there an astrological sort of uh thing to it for you or you know is it is, is this strictly science science based um well i wouldn't say astrological but it may be more hermetic based or, um, I mean, I have fun with those ideas within a record, but they don't necessarily represent exactly my viewpoint on how things work, but they, they can provide points for a story. Yeah. I was kind of working with that. I mean, the Amuamua, like, it was enough, it was a funny idea that some people thought it was a spacecraft. And then I was kind of riffing off of the Simpsons uh, idea, you know, like about, um, you know, welcoming our overlords. So the, the idea was that I would write a song in case, in case this was an alien spaceship. Yeah. That, well, it's just a funny song, but if it really was, then I would say, well, you, you know, I wrote a song for you. So don't, don't get mad at me. 
You, you mean you, know I, you mean in case if if they were showing up to like you know wipe us out or whatever, you wanted to be one of the the humans that they said, okay, this guy can stay because he wrote a a good tune, right. a good exactly. tune for us. Exactly, but of course, I mean this is a joke as well. Like, yeah, I'm not really serious. <laughs> Taking from you know, uh, you know, welcoming our overlords. So yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think that like that that idea of having esoteric and conceptual frameworks to pull from for for records is uh, i mean you know you it sounds like you've got at least from the outside it seems like a fairly idyllic situation where you've got you know a nice place to be and you know books and pointy guitars and stuff so do you do, uh, what else is there books and pointy guitars i mean that's you know you got it all you know but does it does it feel like on the sort of creative writing side of the records that it's fun to draw from that stuff, occult stuff and, and science fiction frameworks and all those other things, just as a way of exploring ideas that maybe it would be harder to get to, uh, you know, without utilizing that kind of far out language or far out terminology or even just the ideas. Well, the idea of that song in particular is also sort of nestled within the framework of the entire record, mm -hmm. which was I moved back to California. So I wanted to do a record about California, but you know, it seems like every fifth record has some California reference in it. And it, I, didn't, I didn't mean it in a Beach Boys way or a weather way. I was specifically framing it in sort of the weird California way, actually in a way that, um, Eric Davis, who the writer Eric Davis um, talks about a lot about how strange California is in terms of all the weird things that always go on, you know. And so that song, it was a, you know, that song was about that that asteroid or whatever, but it was a part of a bigger record of just the weirdness of California and how, um, you, you know, uh, sort of like UFO cults and all of that fun stuff well not fun when i all commit suicide but you know you know what i'm saying it, and uh yeah you know the weirdness of california and so that it was a part of that yeah it was a part of that. so and that song was actually written from the point of view not of me but i tried to write it from the point of view of a ufo cult yeah so i tried to write the chorus as if that's how a ufo cult would write it not that i'm a part of you of a cult but again you know this is it's a story Sure. Yeah. No, we had uh, we 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 did. An, I did an interview with Eric Davis about that about his great book High Weirdness, which is fantastic. I, I'm I'm in the middle of listening to the audio book for like a second time. I just decided I'm gonna yeah. I'm just gonna keep keep like feeding that information into my brain because at least for me, hearing those stories, thinking about that history, the countercultural history, I'm always surprised when it comes out you know what i mean in the you you input it and then what comes out sometimes in you know either interviews or writing or anything it's like you can be really surprised by some of that stuff but it is fascinating and the place california has this rich rich tapestry of strangeness and and weirdo ideas and and out there uh is like baked into the place did you have a sense of that growing up there um i don't think i had a sense of it while i was growing up but it wasn't until i moved away and i was looking back on california and when i was doing the companion rises record i hadn't read his book yet mm. and then after i read his book came out after i recorded it and did some or i read his book after i recorded the record and did some promotion and now I just reference the book. Now instead of me trying to explain, now I can just say, "Oh, just go read, go read High Weirdness" by Eric Davis. That's like, that's the California I'm talking about. Yeah. And when I was writing about a California record, it's like Eric Davis does it very, very well. Yeah, yeah. When we ran of the we we shared the video for 101 on Aquarium Drunkard, and and I think the the reference was like you know from the state that gave us the Integratron you know, yeah. Philip K. Dick and, and whatever, you know, and it's like very much that, that thing of, of the place is, is, is a strange, is a strange place. You've obviously worked with a lot of people 
who aren't afraid to explore the strange in in all sorts of ways. We've already talked about Richard Bishop and um, who I once I interviewed Richard Bishop on stage at Pickathon and uh, oh I saw that interview. Okay, so you know that it was it was it was not. the easiest interview I've ever done because he's a trickster, you know? He's, like, very... um, But that ruled, you know? But, like, you know, I talked with him a little bit about his occult book selling and all this stuff and his antiquarian stuff. So you've got him, and then I was thinking about other folks, too. Obviously, David Tibet, um, who we had... uh, We had Will Oldham and, and Matt Sweeney. I talked with them about Super Wolves, and I cut all this out of the interview because it was a complete tangent. But they started talking to me about current 93 and just sort of like the vast universe of, of what he does. And I thought about how you've, you've been involved in that, you know, and and I just wonder, do you relate to people when you're in a band with someone, obviously it's about a lot of different factors. It's about how you guys get along on a personal level. It's about how you get on on a musical level. But I wonder do you tend to notice commonalities in terms of sort of conceptual ideas with the people that you play with either David Tibet or Ethan Miller or any of the folks that you have kind of had these like relationships with musically? Um, a little bit. It's, it's, it's probably different with David Tibet and uh, Rick Bishop because I had been listening to their music for so long before I even met them or started collaborating with them. So they had already influenced my direction in certain ways, guitar style or certain interests or whatever. So is it sort of easy, easy to lock in with what they were into once, once I met them and started playing music with them and they still influence me in, in stuff and inspire me. I mean, David Tibet himself is such, uh, He's, you know, mad genius and so prolific and works so much. Like, I can't believe he's either doing a book or another record or, and it's always new. Um, he's very, he's very inspiring to me. Yeah. When you start playing with somebody who you've listened to for a while, what is that like? Is it daunting? I, I have to imagine that you have to like, do you have to turn off a part of your head that's like, for lack of a better term, like the fanboy part of your head, does you have to sort of figure out how to kick that person out of the room so that you can focus on, <laughs> you know, being like a, yeah. a present collaborator and facilitator of their ideas? It probably depends on, like with Rick, we had already, we were sort of friends by the time we started playing music. So yeah. I didn't really have that. With Tibet, when I started playing music with him, I was more of a fan. I was, I was a little intimidated to start playing with the band, um, but just kind of got into the groove. But then almost in the same way, uh, the guitar player before me, Michael Cashmore, his his playing was very inspiring to me. And I picked up a bunch of moves from his stuff, especially on the record of Ruiners and Blazing Star. Mm-hmm. With more classical style finger picking, it was really inspiring for my playing. So it was, it was a little bit easier to just kind of get into the, get into the, the lane of what I should be doing. When you've played music as long as you have, do you find that, well, well I'll put it a little bit more basic to, to start. I mean, do you, do you practice a lot? Do you, do you like run scales, run, you know, do you try to learn other stuff or, you know, when you talk about like stepping into a role where there's a little bit more classical involved or obviously you're a finger picker, but what's your, what's your relationship like with the sort of woodshedding side of things? at this point? I used to go, sometimes I would go a month or two without playing the guitar. Mm. And I mean, that has, that has been one change for the last year as I play guitar every day now um, for, for pleasure and to learn stuff. And I sit down to practice now and I, I, I try to better myself as a guitar player um, a little bit more than I used to. So what, it, so the, the, I might be a little off on the date. Did the did the hexadic like the the musical notation system that entered the picture around 2015ish is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, I think um that's when the book and the record started coming out. I was working on that pretty hardcore for about 2 years before that. Um and then it came out around 2015. Well, for listeners that 
who don't know exact don't know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, could you explain it a little bit? What the what the actual? It's a it's a notation system where I'm I'm terrible at music theory, so I'm I'm I'm. Well, that's okay because it has nothing to do with music theory. Okay, <laughs> I've, I've had people who are very, uh, you know, who definitely knew their music theory, and, and thought, oh, you know, send me the book, and I said, and it's like, what? This is not. It's it's actually it's not anti theory, but it's it, it's its own thing, really. Yeah. Well, 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 tell me about what inspired you to want to create something like that. I mean, was it sort of a reference to, I, I when I think of sort of like, um, I guess I, I, I immediately thought of when I learned about it, stuff like, you know, like oblique strategies or these sort of things that people will, like the Eno uh, thing, like a, sort of a conceptual, um, almost like a game that which you could play with yourself in order to generate musical ideas or was that sort of it? Was that the way you thought of it when you started working on it? How did, how did you decide to start working on it or how did that happen? Uh, the idea, and this sounds like a myth, but it's very true. The idea came when I, uh, I had two mornings in a row where as I was starting to wake up in, in that state, I, I just kind of had a dream about composing with a deck of cards and that's all I had. And then I, I had the same dream the next morning mm. and that's when I thought, Oh, I should try this out. Like I should, how could it, how could this work? And there's also, you know, I mean, Mozart had a game where he was, you know, you could compose with dice, you'd have phrases. So nothing it's that idea in particular, isn't that new but I needed to figure out how it would work and what the framework would be and whatever. So I started to experiment with different things. And the, the first structure I had, um, the first time I tried to see if it worked, um, well, first maybe I should explain what, it's basically just composing with a deck of cards, but it's, it's where each card is a specific note um, including it's very octave specific. So you, mm -hmm. you will have a card in one octave, but that doesn't mean it's the same note in the next octave. And then, so that's, that's the most general way I could describe it. And so when I started, the first time I started fooling around with it, I kind of came up with this idea. Now let's see if this works. And I did a certain thing. And when I played it, it reminded me of the band Connate. Um, mm. Stephen O'Malley's uh, and um, kind of, I think, I don't know if they were before Sun, maybe at the same time. I'd seen them play a few times. And that was, I don't know if it was just because exactly what I was doing at that time reminded me, whatever it was, it was a, it was a sign to, to say, you know, keep going. Yeah. And that, that's how, that's the beginning of the project. At what point did you, or, or rather, how did it happen that other people, I think, including Stephen O'Malley, ended up sort of utilizing the cards to create some stuff? Did you did you st immediately start sort of sharing it with people, or did you sort of envision it more as a personal thing at first? I shared it pretty quickly. I shared it with a bunch of friends and everything. And the people who wrote back to me and were positive about it, then I kind of asked them if they might want to do something. Yeah. Uh, and then so... And the people who didn't write back, then I just left them alone. Yeah, it was kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you, you so so it, it literally came to you in a dream, two dreams. Um, mm -hmm. were, what were you feeling at the time musically? Um, you know, around the time that you had those dreams, were you feeling stuck at all musically, or frustrated, or or or, or you know, could, have you have you put much thought into sort of analyzing? maybe what was going through your head around that time? No, I don't remember. Um, it was right after, it was right after the first new bums record, which mm -hmm. I think came out in 2014 and the six organs record that had come out before that was the ascent record, yeah. which was more of a rock and record. Um, I think I was just reading more texts that had to do with combinatorial methods, not even in music. Yeah. And then, so that kind of led it led into a lot of it, and then you made a handful of re a, a couple records that bore the the name of it, and then um, was was Companion Rises the first record you did kind of coming out of it? Uh, no, there's one I did. Um, 
no, I, I did uh, another record, <laughs> the one with the bird on it. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, a threshold. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's such a it's such an awkward title for a record. Yeah, burning the threshold. Burning the threshold, I, which is a great. I have to get it myself. That's a great album, right? And that had a bunch of different collaborators, really, really cool people. Riley Walker, uh, yeah, uh, Circuit Day U, like all these, like that. That's that's a that's a fantastic record. Uh, what was the uh, um, when you decided to put the deck of cards away for that one? What inspired that choice? Was it just just wanted to 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 try another approach? Yeah, sort of back to when I was saying I like to go across the mm-hmm. wheel. I the ecstatic records were so almost atonal that I wanted to get back into more of a folk type type of record. Um, something a little easier to listen to. Well, that records, that's a real, uh, warm and inviting and very balmy record. You know, that's a really nice, nice mode. I think that is sort of the kind of some of the earliest stuff that I heard of yours kind of back around like Arthur magazine days, you know, when I would just like, get that magazine at um the record store that I worked at and just like circle like I would just go through and just like try to find anything that sounded cool mm-hmm. you know and I think I got introduced to some of your stuff maybe the even the the compilation that Devendra Banhart put out you know and it it was kind of more in that kind of folky mode but but you've never ever been somebody who will stick in just one mode um do you think that's an outgrowth of your of your life as a musical listener? Because you also are pretty all over the map when it comes to uh, your musical taste. I think so. I just, uh, I mean, it's just me. The band is just me. So it right. really frees me up. I'm not arguing with anybody over what stuff should sound like. And there's there's no sense of, well, I have to make this one thing better and better so that I get more and more people listening to me. I mean, Richard Young's is a hero of mine. And so in terms of music, in terms of how he decides to do records and it's, he has an idea and he completes it and they're always amazing records. And I, I sort of, I don't, I wouldn't say I model myself after him, but I, I'm inspired by the way that he does music. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. When you start digging into a record, how, you know, we talked a little bit about the the conceptual frameworks and how you kind of like to employ themes and uh, certainly, you know, specific ideas on on albums. If you aren't going into them with that stuff sort of mapped out, what does the process look like in terms of sort of figuring out what a record is about? Um, Is it just a lot of do you do a lot of demoing? Do you do a lot of imp- improvisation? You know, what is sort of the the way that a record comes together for you? Usually just sort of have a core idea and let it form. A lot of the early stuff, definitely a lot of the early, the first few times I would go into a studio, I only had a few ideas and I would go in there, um, like, like School of the Flower, Sun Awakens. I just had a general idea of what I wanted to sound like. And I would let the studio take care of the rest an inspiration in the studio form what it was going to, what it was going to be like, basically. So you mean you'd, you'd put some stuff down and then sort of just start building off of that? Yeah. I would only have a couple of riffs or whatever and go in and let it form in the studio. Was, was that nerve wracking at all? Uh, in terms of, of, of putting yourself on the spot or was there something maybe motivating about that for you? I think I was just pretty cocky and more than anything. I thought, oh, I could do this, whatever. And it worked for a few, you know, most of the time it worked. And then then I probably started to get scared, you know, look down off the high wire and be like, this is pretty scary. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I'm going to I'm gonna map some stuff out a little more. Where do you think that, that cockiness was established? In, in bands previous, you know? Because, I mean... Uh, probably alcohol. Probably <laughs> just... <laughs> Just too too much drinking. Oh, I, got, I got this. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you know? yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm joking about being cocky. I don't know. It seems like I must have been pretty cocky to think I could go in there and get away with it. Maybe because on School of the Flower I did that, and I thought it came out pretty good, and then I just thought I could do that. And then after a while, I thought maybe maybe I should plan some stuff out a little bit more. 
So, you know, do you feel like you have, there's other projects, you know, that exist for you aside from Six Organs, usually collaborative projects. Um, Do you ever find yourself working on stuff that you think, because Six Organs is just you, in your mind, could anything you do be a Six Organs record? Or are there things where you do something and you just think to yourself, this isn't, for whatever reason part of of the six organs under the six organs banner or things like that yeah six organs definitely has its own thing and on my computer i have a file for ronda demos and riffs and things and different projects and back when i was playing with comets it was definitely like oh this is a comets riff and this is a six organs in my mind they're always very separate how do you how do you know what's what it's just intuitive i usually sit down thinking of Mm. I'm going to, I, I, yeah, I don't usually sit down and ask the heavens for some inspiration and something's beamed into my head. And then I think, what is this for? What is God trying to tell me? You know, I I just, I'm, I focus a little bit more and I think, Oh, maybe I should work on some wrong stuff. And then I'll maybe write a riff or something in that style. Yeah. And then with, with, with Donovan and doing new bum stuff, um, is it just sort of more traditional song, song based stuff where you're just like, okay, this is definitely where this one's going. Yeah. Wrong. I mean, um, uh, new bums is really easy because it's mostly me going through Donovan's songs. Yeah. And, and then me being like, all right, I'll take this one. I'll take this one and I'll take this one. All yeah. Right, thank you. And then I'll, maybe I'll write one or two songs for the project. You know, yeah. That's kind of what it ends up. Yeah. The I, the the bio for the new new bums album says something like the the return of the duo that no one asked for or something. Um, and I found that there is a a really like, um, there's a there's a a charm and a humor to the new bum stuff that I that I really really appreciate. And I like that the two of you seem so uh. In, in in a in kind of it, it seems like it's, it's like it's a pretty natural collaborate collaboration how, how did you how did you guys first start working together mm, well the early stuff was because i used i lived next door to donovan basically in san francisco it was technically two houses away from him and we didn't really know each other very well but I just started inviting him over to my house and we would play in the garage and just play acoustic guitar together. And this is sort of how we became friends Yeah, from playing music. And we'd be drinking a little bit and just getting to know each other. And that's how it started. I have those early demos. They're pretty funny. Um, some of them made them on the first record. And so maybe because the band and the friendship kind of formed at the same time, it kind of has that vibe. Yeah. Well, it's a great vibe. Um, thinking back to some of the earliest stuff I heard of yours, obviously, aside from the Six Organ stuff, it was the Comets on Fire stuff. Um, and uh, and there are on the Veiled Sea also some moments that sort of remind me of Comets, just in terms, maybe it's just because you're a lead guitarist in uh, in the Comet stuff on on records like, you joined with Blue Cathedral, right? Is that is that right? Uh, tech, f- f- I f- became a full-time member with Blue Cathedral, though I played a couple of the guitar solos on um, field recordings from the song. How did, how did you hook up with Ethan and those guys? Ethan grew up in the same town that I grew up in, and but we didn't know each other at all. He's a little younger than me. And then he moved to Santa Cruz before I moved to Santa Cruz. And then when I moved to Santa Cruz... Part of the reason was because there were friends down there from my town and he was one of them and it was fun to hang out. And then I, um, I really liked comments on fire and I wanted to be in a rock band. So I took the lazy way out and instead of trying to form my own band, I, I basically forced my way into comments on fire. I remember I wrote, I wrote a list of cool bands that had two guitar players and I gave it to Ethan and I said, all right, just take a look at this list. Just think about it. All right, you just think about it. And um, yeah, basically just forced my way in there. Do you remember any of the bands, cool bands with two guitar players on? on do you remember any of the bands on that list? I remember Crazy Horse was on it. Yeah. I, that's the only one I specifically remember. Uh, 
Crazy Horse is truly one of the greatest two band, two guitar bands of all of all time. We had an interview yeah. that by the time this one airs, I'm I'm trying to make sure that this is true in my head. Um, yeah. By the time this one airs, that one will have already aired, so we can reference it safely. But oh, cool. I, but I I talked with Jim Jarmish about Crazy Horse a bunch, and the film that he oh, cool. the film that he made about him, Year of the Horse, is right. as far as I'm concerned one of the greatest. It's a great rock doc, in in my opinion, um, because it's just like one seared, fried, you know, mood of these of yeah. these, these dudes playing together, and, and and Crazy Horse does that. The Comet stuff has a, it's not it's not the same at all. It doesn't sound like that, but it does have that sort of sustained intensity. Uh, but I remember when Avatar came out, it was clear that all of a sudden you guys were kind of trying some other stuff too. There, there sort of was like this, like uh, some of the more delicate textures on that record. It's still wild at times. Um, that was the last comments record, right? Yeah, that was the last comments record. Um, the interesting thing is that a lot of the quieter sounds from comments and the quieter songs, people tended to think, Maybe they were from me because I was from Six Organs, but there were a lot of them were from the drummer, Utrio, and he would write the stuff. So if a song had piano on it, it was Utrio had written it, yeah. and he had written it on piano, and we would switch live to to do that as well. I was the one in the band who was always trying to play faster because I already had Six Organs, so I didn't want to be quiet. And then so we would play, I'd say, no, no, let's do this really super hard, fast, like, you know, I wrote the song, it sounds like Motorhead or something, you know. Yeah. That was what I was trying to do because I already had six organs. What was the first stuff that made you want to play guitar? Was it stuff like that? Was it, you know, Motorhead, kind of kind of crazy, crazy? What, what, what were some of the first things that inspired you to want to pick up a guitar? Do you mean when I was a kid? Yeah. Stuff? Um, I mean, it would probably be stuff that my dad was playing, uh, he he always he was always playing music and I think Crazy Horse would be one of them. I mean, I mean one of my first memories is hearing um, maybe not one of my first, but one of my early memories is hearing Live Rust at an extremely loud volume. You know, in that house that I we grew up in this rural area, so he would just turn the stereo up so loud. He had a really good stereo, and so this is that's how I experienced that record yeah. the first time. And so hearing stuff like that, you know, very loud stuff. Was your was your dad ahead? Was he a music listener? Yeah, he was. He, I mean, he he was into Nick Drake um, in the seventies, and he was in all this really good music. But he told me it's because he grew up in L.A. and I don't know what radio station it was, but that's where he was getting turned on to all of this good jams. He said there was some radio station in L.A. and he would listen to it. And that's how we got turned on to good music. I'm trying to imagine what just a, a commercial radio station turning me <laughs> on to like Nick Nick Drake and and that. I mean, you know, Neil for sure. But, you know, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what it was. Yeah, He said he remembers the day that uh, Nick he saw an article that Nick Drake had died. Hmm. And um, so he was already tuned in at that time. So I grew up with it was it was a lot of guitar rock. So it's kind of natural that I went that direction. How about some of the first stuff? What what were your first? What did your first bands sound like, or your first musical outings? <laughs> well, I don't know. if We need to go there. Um, you know, they were they were really cool. Yeah, they were really <laughs> yeah. really cool. We, yeah, I'm sh- uh, <laughs> well, well, was it was it like punk stuff that sort of inspired? You know, that kind of yeah. got you. Yeah, just a mishmash of stuff. I mean, yeah, just a just a mishmash. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. At what point did you start to feel like you sort of had a, had a handle on what you what you wanted to do? Sort of wh- whenever it matured beyond that thing, you know, when did you start to feel like you sort of had a a sense of who you were as a player or as a songwriter or as a a, mu- a musician? <sighs> That's a really good question. I I don't know if there was ever a realization or if it was just a slow long process of evolution you know yeah yeah so at that point you know where where what was the first sort of scene 
where was the first scene that you sort of found yourself enmeshed in? Was it Southern California? No, it was in Northern California. Okay, in, yeah. Um, in my hometown. And I was in a band with actually Yatria, who ended up playing drums and Comets. Some of my first bands were with him that were more punk bands, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we would play locally. And actually, Ethan was kind of in that scene as well, a um, little bit younger, and he was in his own bands. Um, yeah, there was sort of a punk scene in Eureka, California. Okay, so there was sort of a scene. Did it, was it at odds with the the Northern California? I mean, were, were, were there hippies around who didn't like the punk thing? Was there any, any weirdness? Well, there, was good, there was a good punk scene, and I'm going to wrap this around to the beginning of this interview and mention that if you noticed in the Bigfoot documentary, Larry Livermore is in there and he ran Lookout Records. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That, that's that's the guy who started Lookout Records. So, in, so there was sort of a connection with the Bay Area, East Bay punk scene. So a lot of those bands would come up and play. When when the the quote unquote fr- freak folk thing started to sort of happen and and was sort of recognized as a thing, did what that, that? <laughs> you've never heard of, you never heard of the term freak folk? No, it's a little it was a little <laughs> little used uh, music critic terminology that. Uh, I think I might have heard. Yeah, I think I think I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, once or twice it might have been applied to you and some of your friends. Um I wonder if there was any sense at that time of sort of a return to that weird weirdo California or not a return rather, but did you sort of view at all what you were doing in terms of being part of that lineage of the sort of strange California counterculture thing? No, I didn't. Um, and I mean, even that term freak folk, I never, it's not because I don't want to be labeled anything. I just never, I never felt, first of all, I just don't, it's kind of an embarrassing title. There, there are a few titles for genres that are as embarrassing as freak. To me, it just doesn't sound good. Yeah. Black metal. That's a cool, that's a cool title. Oh, we're black metal. That sounds cool. That stuff. Uh, freak, I just didn't really. And also it's a bastardization of free folk. Mm-hmm. which I did, uh, which I did feel a part of, which is more Matt Valentine. Um, I think Matt came up with that term and that is supposed to, it's supposed to represent, well, it's folk music, but it's running parallel to free jazz. It's free folk where things are open. Yeah. And, and that I appreciate. I, I, the, the, there were festivals like free folk festivals and somehow that term got changed to freak. And so that's one reason why I didn't really like that term very much. Um, And yeah, it, I, when I started doing six organs, I was more influenced by the people on the East coast. Anyway, even Matt's band tower recordings. I mean, there were two people tower recordings and Joshua Burkett, and they were doing records that, I love so much. And I thought, well, I, I want to do music like this. This is what I, I, I really love this stuff. And that's later I became friends with those guys. And I felt those people were, I, I felt um, my comrades. Yeah. Yeah. So the freak folk thing kind of, I mean, in addition to it being like a strange designation that you didn't identify with, um, you feel like it almost sort of stripped away some of the, the intent of, of, of you know mv's more uh descriptive free folk meaning but at the same time i guess what was exciting about that stuff you know and it was a term where if you would have asked me in 2006 or 2005 or whatever do you like freak folk i would have been like yeah it's my favorite whatever you know i because yeah and and i just want to say i'm not putting down no sure 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 or and certainly people listen to six organs that never would have listened to i appreciate that so yeah i'm not no, genre is always such a, that's why, that's one of the reasons why I appreciate your discography so much because, and we've had, we've had people on the podcast and, and, and genre comes up sometimes, but I try to not get too hung up on those designations because they're also arbitrary. None of them mean anything. And, uh, and they are sort of marketing terms as much as they are anything else, you know? Um, right. Well, if, 
I mean, to me, there's a difference between genre and a scene. Mm-hmm. So if, if a genre is supposed to be somewhat of a horizon of expectation for the listener, they somewhat know what to expect yeah. from this term of the music that they're going to get. But a scene can be a bunch of people who don't necessarily share a genre, but they share common ideals or locations. That's why I feel my scene mostly the people on the East coast doing music. Yeah. Um, or, and even Texas with Charlamides. I mean, that was sort of, and that was more of a scene, mm-hmm. which I think, it, and I, I kind of just mentioned this to some, I don't know in an interview, but I'll mention it again. That I think that's what, that's what David Keenan was trying to get across when he said new word America, it wasn't supposed to be a genre as in this, because all of his bands sounded different yeah. to me, but they were all coming from, they play shows together, a lot of the shows, and it, it wasn't a genre. And so I I definitely felt like I was a part of that scene, but I did not feel like I was a part of uh, the freak folk genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were more drawn to the ethos of, as a musician, you can draw from wherever you want to draw from, you know, without there being any sort of boxing in of that sort of thing. Yeah, especially since those people who, you know, Matt Valentine and, um, you know, a lot of it centered around Byron Coley had space, Yod Space out there. And it's very record collector oriented in the same way that you could say Sonic Youth is a record collector oriented rock band. Yeah. So this was doing, and that's not to say the other people weren't collecting records. I know they were, but it's very fueled by record collecting. Um, I mean, the Yacht Space itself had amazing records and people would go there. And Corsano was working at the Yacht Space. Yeah. People were collecting records like mad. And that was a big fuel. Let's experiment. Let's do this new thing. Let's do this new thing. And so that's why it's harder to call that a genre because as a listener, if there, there isn't that horizon of expectation of what it's going to sound like when you put it on, all you know is it'll kind of be a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, so, you know, part of the thing that was associated with all that was people like Thurston Moore were certainly helping to bring, you know, the John Fahey's of the world to people who might not necessarily know that stuff, you know, because he was in, there was an introductory quality to it. But it doesn't seem to, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like even the quote unquote, you know, American primitive or guitar soleil or any of, any of those terms. It does. It seems like just the same way that you maybe necessarily didn't didn't worry about freak folk so much. You didn't necessarily worry about those designations either, right? Did you see yourself in lineage with people like? Well, I mean, maybe maybe certain guys you did, you know, Basho or something like that. Is that you know? Uh, I guess you helped get that Gary Higgins record out, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, such a good album. It's a beautiful record. I love it. Um... It's interesting because as I've been doing music, people have been calling my music different things. Yeah, exactly. As it's gone along. So in the the early days, it was more classified with that sort of finger picking style. And then it changed to freak folk. And then kind of that tag kind of sticks with it. No matter how many noise records you put out, you're still going to come up with fine. Um, <laughs> you've, got, you've, you've got a Faust cover on this record, you know, like you're, you're, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's changed. People have called it different, different things at different times. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel uh, uh, with the designation rock and roll? Because this is sort of a, a sort of a rocking record in a, in a, in a really exciting, in exciting way. Yeah. I'm fine with rock and roll. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as such a, uh, a noted, you know, listener, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit of, of, to close out what you've, what you've been digging lately. Have you, have you been listening to anything particularly cool that you might want to share with listeners? Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. It's a dreaded um, question. Every time I ask somebody, and every time I'm asked, my brain just goes completely blank. So, yeah, it's the same reason why it's best to make a list of records you're looking for when you're headed to Amoeba Records before you step through those doors. Because I step through the doors at Amoeba and I suddenly forget you're, everything I'm interested in. That's right. Or looking for, you know? Yeah, you're 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 screwed because it's, it's just 
And then you just have to wander around and see what's going to pop out or whatever, which is nice too, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, hopefully you know somebody who works there and you go up to them and be like, what are you listening to? <laughs> what should I get? Yeah, yeah. The best thing to do. Um, I've been... I've been listening to a lot of uh, a lot of the freedom to spend everything on freedom to spend that's been coming out, and uh, I picked up that new Charmaine Lee record, which is really badass and incredible. And uh, that's what I that's what I've mostly been listening to now. Oh, and this band Shackleton, which is more of a um, more English, more electronic English kind of stuff. Okay, current. Current stuff? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He still he still does he still does records, yeah. Yeah, I'm not familiar I'm not familiar at all. Um the electronic elements on the new record are also very exciting. Um which Thanks. is to say I don't know that there's any direct connection, but um a little bit. I've been listening to more electronic music probably the last six or seven years, maybe. So Yeah, yeah. Do you find that you're pretty uh um, um, omnivorous where you, you, you do tend to listen to stuff from all, all over the map still, or, or, you know, probably, probably all over the map. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. I just, like anything, I go through phases where I don't listen to anything new and then all of a sudden I have to get a bunch of new stuff and devour it. And that's all I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and to, yeah. to, to hang out. Um, a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's I I love I love doing these especially with people like you who just have been around and and continued to surprise, you know? That's the thing I I I appreciate so much about your work and so much about your ethos is that if you would have taken if you if we could go back in time and find young me with my Arthur magazine stashed under my arm or whatever uh and played this record, I I I don't know that I would have uh known you know how to how to how to reconcile these two bands you know but i guess at the same same time what was so cool about stuff like arthur magazine or you know the various labels that were putting stuff out back then is that there was a lot of variety so i don't know maybe i was i was getting into sun at the same time so i yeah. think you know i think you can you can wrap your head around it uh arthur was good arthur i mean sun was in arthur too arthur oh was, yeah I, and they did a cd because Arthur used to do those comp CDs. So I believe, and I could be wrong, and somebody could tell me I'm wrong, but I believe I have been on more of those Arthur comp CDs than, because I was on Ethan's, and I was on Devendra's, and I was on Alice's Narrows's. All had six organs. Okay. so you're and, yet, and yet, Jay never asked me to do it. <laughs> Just joking, Jay. <laughs> well, he lives he lives down in Tucson, so I think uh, when we hang up now, I'll just I'll go I'll drive down and I'll uh, yeah knock yeah, knock we... on his door and say <laughs> that not only does he need to reboot Arthur because we need it, um, yeah. but also he's got to get you to do a comp. The reboot was great. He did kind of do that reboot for and it was looking amazing. Two, yeah, two, just like two issues, or maybe just one, when it was like magaz or newspaper size, and it was like yeah. a foldout. Boy, it was, it was so good. Yeah, yeah. Again. Well, we'll have to we'll have to bug him. We'll have to get him to come on the podcast. You should. That would be awesome. He's, that would be super awesome. He rules. Well, well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. going to bring this episode to a close thanks so much for listening i'm jason woodbury i write host and produce transmissions audio editing is by andrew horton sarah goldstein and jonathan mark walls produce visual work for the show this week's interview was transcribed for aquarium drunkard by ella fortney our top of the show announcer and executive producer and aquarium drunkard founder is justin gage Tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. California time for the Aquarium Drunkard Show on Sirius XMU. Next week, 
On the show, we'll be joined by music maker, creative thinker, and DJ Carlos Nino. It's a really far out conversation about music and mysticism and creativity, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So stand by until then, but we will speak again soon. If you absolutely can't wait until next Wednesday, there's plenty more to hear in the archives, stuff you might have missed. So check it out at Aquarium Drunkard or wherever you get your podcasts. Scroll back there. Lots of interesting talks. Okay, stay safe until then. Speak more soon.